our Lord Sunday. It is the Sunday that falls directly after Epiphany, and in many ways, this just makes sense. For Jesus' baptism is an Epiphany. Each of our own baptisms are Epiphanies. And what really struck out to me in these verses as I thought about them this week was the concept of the heavens being opened. As Jesus was baptized, the heavens were opened. And I pondered this week, what does that mean? And I think, I think it means that that which separates us from God is no longer there. That God is no longer behind the firmament, up in the clouds at a distance, but here among us. We all know of, know that. But do we believe it? Do we respond to it? Do we live into it? For sometimes we need a reminder that baptism is an epiphany kind of moment. For epiphanies are not subtle. Yes, we can look for God in all kinds of people and places, but sometimes God comes crashing in through the clouds and stops us dead in our tracks. We here at Bethel often talk about the importance of our own baptismal identity. We must remember our baptism daily, a daily dying and rising to Christ. But it's not enough just to remember. We must be able to give witness to it in language and in terms that are accessible and understandable. And so this is where the heavens opening up really connected with me. There is an intrusion here, an inability of God to be separate from whom God loves, whether we like it or not. We tend to define this as great. The unearned, undeserved love of God made known to us in Jesus Christ. For the Gospel of Mark actually says that the heavens were torn apart, were ripped open, in this one sacred moment. And if we're honest, our own baptismal liturgy is pretty tame. A few drips of water, a dressed-up recipient, parents, some affirmative words from the congregation, and lots of smiles. But Jesus' baptism reminds us that we should not get too comfortable with baptism. For God is choosing to be with us. God is choosing to be one of us. God is choosing to make God's self known to us. These are our own epiphany. We get to see the true character of God. A God who would risk safety and security. A God who would risk laud and honor. A God who would risk distance and determination. So that God would know what it means to be among us and one of us. Baptism is boundary crossing. Baptism is a risk. Baptism is a political act. Baptism is pledging allegiance, first and foremost, to Jesus Christ and his church. Baptism is the affirmation of God's presence extending to all of us before we have the capacity or knowledge to choose it. And if we are honest, the heavens opening can be good news and not such good news, depending on how close to God we actually want to be, what we want God to see, and who we want God to think that we actually are. 
Yes, baptism is about promise, the promise of God's love and God's grace, God's protection and God's provision, the comfort of God's community. But Jesus' baptism reminds us that baptism is also an epiphany. What God chooses to reveal about God's self is not always seen in little pretty white dresses and water, for God rips the heavens open. God pushes through the firmament and says, you, yes, you are loved by me. You are my beloved. This we know. This is the importance of witnessing Jesus' baptism as a remembrance and a promise of our own. Maybe, just maybe, the heavens are opened and God speaks every time one is baptized. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to Jesus' baptism, to our own baptism, to God made known to us in Jesus the Christ? We respond in faithfulness. For it is immediately after Jesus' baptism that he is led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he encounters temptation from the devil. And he responds with faithfulness. One of our forefathers of the faith, John Wesley, really models to us what faithfulness is about. He lived in the 1700s as an Anglican evangelist. He preached three sermons a day for 54 years. That's serious. I do like two or three times a week. He preached more than 44,000 sermons in his lifetime. He traveled by horseback more than 200,000 miles, about 5,000 miles a year. He knew 10 languages, published a four-volume commentary on the Bible, an English dictionary, five volumes on natural philosophy, four volumes on church history, histories of England and Rome, grammar books on Hebrew, Latin, Greek, French, and English, three works on medicine, six volumes on church music, seven volumes of his sermons and controversial papers, and edited a library of 50 books. John Wesley was a faithful individual. He spoke out against slavery. He arose at 4 a.m. and worked solidly till 10 p.m. This guy was serious. He said, I have more hours of private retirement than any man in England. At 83, he was irritated because he could no longer write for more than 15 hours a day without his eyes hurting. On his 85th birthday, he wrote that he felt no weariness while traveling or preaching. But at 86, he was ashamed that he could no longer preach more than twice a day. He continued talking about this stuff. And in his diary, at 86 years old, he actually complained that he had the increasing tendency to sleep in until 5.30 a.m. John Wesley was a faithful individual. And he modeled for us what faithfulness is all about. And in today's text, we see John the Baptist doing the same. For John the Baptist has been going around for some time, preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John submitted his life to God and lived a life of faithfulness as well. Many had come, many had repented, submitted their lives to God through John the Baptist's baptism. They had heard his preaching. Their hearts had been opened. No longer would they own two coats, for they would give one of them away. No longer would they take more tax than when it's necessary. 
God's teaching and preaching had spoken to them, and their hearts had been opened to the way of the gospel. They had been baptized, and they were now to respond with faith. For John was a prophetic preacher who preached forgiveness through repentance, which included a call to baptism. Luke seemed to understand baptism as a symbolic act that included the washing away of pollution caused by sin. Repentance was huge for John. Repentance for John meant turning. In Luke 1.16, we are told that John's task was to turn the people of Israel back to God. John preached and baptized, and people were turning to God, coming closer and closer. So some people naturally thought that John must be the Messiah. I mean, after all, his teaching was so inspired. He was going against the grain. He seemed to be making a difference in the world. And yet John was very cautious not to allow others to see him in this light. John made clear that he was not the Messiah, but that he was preparing the way for the Messiah. John said that he baptized with water, but that the Messiah would baptize with fire in the Holy Spirit. He will make the difference. John's analogy to fire is interesting here. Fire for ancient peoples was a deeply spiritual thing. For fire had the power to heal as well as destroy. If tamed, fire would provide warmth and light in the midst of cold and darkness. But if untamed, fire would bring destruction and chaos. Fire was symbolic to the presence of God. For if you remember in the Exodus account, God's presence manifests itself to Moses in a burning bush. And after the Israelites had been led out of Egypt, God's presence becomes known as a pillar of fire. And at Mount Sinai, when Moses brought the people to see God, he descended upon the mountain in fire. Fire was also used to refine and to purify. A blacksmith would use fire to purify the metal. It would use fire to heat it up so it could be molded, it could be changed. And what John is saying is that the Messiah would bring God's presence to the earth, that he would bring the fire, that he would bring God's presence with him to God's people, and that he would purify the people of God. John goes on to talk about a winnowing fork. And what he's talking about here is the process of harvesting grain. John's audience would have been very familiar with the process of harvesting grain. Basically, what would happen is they would go to the top of a hill, and you would take a winnowing fork with you, and you would scoop up the grain and throw it into the air in order to separate the wheat from the chaff. Threshing floors were built on the hill so that when the wind would blow, it would separate the chaff from the grain. The lighter chaff would get blown away while the heavier grain would fall back down to the ground. Yet John is not saying that the Messiah is the one who does the throwing and the separate. For the prophets have done this. John himself has done this. Repentance has already been preached. People have already been told to give away their extra coats and share their food. John is saying that they have already been separated, and the job of the Messiah is simply to clear the threshing floor, thus making the wheat usable. Now, often when looking at this passage, many people will look at this analogy of these 
Wheat and chaff is referring to two different types of people, Christians and non-Christians. Christians are the wheat, they would say, and non-Christians are the chaff who are burned up. And they may say that if we don't center our lives on God's will and God's purposes, we will be burned up too. Yet I think something deeper is going on here. John has already talked about fire, and we talked about how fire was used by blacksmiths to make metal ready to be shaped, molded, and used. Well, now John is talking about a winnowing fork. And so the wheat is ready to be produced and used. Maybe in this analogy, John isn't talking about two different types of people, but two types of behavior within the same person. Maybe John is saying that the Messiah will separate the chaff from the wheat in our own lives. That God will burn up the things that keep us from being who God wants us to be. In this passage, Jesus is pointing toward the Messiah. And John is saying he will build up the things in our lives that hold us back from being used by God. John is saying that Jesus will burn up our pride, our hate, our prejudice, our greed, and our lust. John is saying that the Messiah will transform God's people into a holy people. People that God can use for the purpose of restoring the world. You know, when we read this story and hear about the Messiah coming, we know exactly who John is talking about. For it's Jesus. He is the Messiah. This is one of the central truths of Epiphany. We just finished the Christmas season in which we celebrated Jesus' birth. We read the birth narrative of Luke, the story of Mary and Joseph, the innkeeper, the no room at the end. And so we read this text knowing exactly who John is referring to. John is referring to Jesus. John willfully submitted to God's calling in his life. He shared God's message of repentance, transformation, and justice. And we are called to do the same. We are called to willfully submit to God's calling in our lives. We are called to respond to that same grace that is often revealed to us in baptism. We are called to be a faithful people. People who devote our time, our talents, and our resources to loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We are called to allow God to separate the wheat and the chaff from within our lives. We are called to ask God to cleanse us with God's holy fire that we may be made transformed, set apart for the mission of God in the world. We are called to be agents of reconciliation, partnering with God for the redemption of all of God's creation. This is who we are be. We are to be transformed. We are to be set apart. We are to be faithful. No matter what comes, we are to be faithful. Because sometimes situations in life come that are overwhelming. Sometimes situations come where words don't adequately give expression to the hurt, the pain, the trauma that we're encountering. 
Sometimes it's hard to be faithful when we keep getting knocked down time and time again. But there is good news. Prophet Isaiah says these words. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you. O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Amen.